If you got a copy of God's Word, I want you to look with me for the next few moments. I'm going to take just a little bit. I'm not going to go to uh, Genesis tonight. So it'll be Genesis 19 next Wednesday night. But I'm going to take you to Colossians. Um, Interesting little book. Paul wrote it from prison. I may have told you this before. One of the fascinating things about uh, Florida is Cape Canaveral. There's a building there, that uh, vehicle assembly building. Uh, You have seen it on uh, television before. It was massive. When they built that thing, I think it was back in the early 70s, they wanted to build something that they could assemble those rockets as tall as they are and uh, put the space shuttle up on top of the thing and just assemble it in the building, roll it out to keep it out of uh, the weather in Florida because lightning strikes those things all the time. And um, they wanted to get it out of the rain, so they built this building. They called all these engineers together. They got the best engineers they could find. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars on or we spent hundreds of millions of dollars on this. And um, they built the large, at that time, it was the tallest building, in a, I think they said in America, and the largest building in the world. It covered city blocks, if you can just imagine. So they built those massive rockets in there, and they would roll them out on that, uh, on that uh, track that they had. They would roll it out to the launch pad. What they never thought of was this. When they built that thing, when the engineers put all of that together and they built it, what they never planned for was this. That building was so large that when conditions were right, it created its own weather. It, uh, it had warm and cool uh, fluctuating air streams in that building. It, had, it created its own pressure system. And when the conditions were right, clouds would form at the very top of that thing and it would rain. Now, they've had to go back and take, you know, put in all this air conditioning, air handling and all this stuff in order to suck the air out of that building every hour and put new air back into it every hour. So it's an ongoing process, but it's kind of interesting. That building was so big, it created its own climate, literally. Now, everything has its own climate. Um, Your home has its own climate. Your marriage has its own climate. Sometimes it's sunny, sometimes it's stormy, right? Huh? You You have a climate in your home. You have a climate in your marriage. You have a climate in your workplace. You have a you have a climate um, in places where you go. You can sense. Uh, and let me tell you, churches have their own climate. Uh, we don't call it really climate anymore. We call it culture. And churches, every church has its own culture. I've, I've uh, I preach a lot of places. I've been off preaching the last number of weeks. I've been in churches. I was in a church not long ago that I knew when I got up, I, you could sense the culture there. And I knew it was going to be a great night, and uh, we must have had half the congregation at the altar. And uh, then I've preached. I preached here recently to preachers. They're the worst people in the world to preach to. Uh, They have their own culture, and it's almost like, I'm here, you impress me kind of deal. So, you know, churches have, and you stop and you think about that, we create the culture in this church. Now, if something goes south in this place, we can't get in the car, 
drive a mile down the road and get out at the next church and point our fingers at them and say, you're what's wrong with our church. We can't do, because they're not. We can't even go back 45 years and find the original folks who started Valleydale Church and point our fingers at them and say, you're what's wrong with it. We can't do that. The culture we have right now in this church is what we have made. Thank you for that one amen, Mr. Ken. I appreciate it. But it's true. Just like the church at Colossae. Now take your copy of God's Word. Let me take you there to Colossians chapter 2 for just a minute or two because Paul was talking to them about the climate or the culture in the church at Colossae. Strabo, the the Greek uh, geographer, tells us that the river, the Lycus River, ran directly through the ancient city of Colossae. Uh, And it's almost a picture of uh, the church in in any place. It is the river of God in that place. But oftentimes, there are other tributaries that will feed into it. And when Paul writes the church at Colossae, he's writing them because he's concerned that there is a stream flowing into the church at Colossae that will become the, the heresy that we'll know as Gnosticism. It was in its early formation at that time. It was not full-blown. By the time you get to 1 John, uh, it is full-blown. You see Gnosticism for what it is. It denied the deity of Christ. It really said that Christ was not human, and he wasn't divine. He was some kind of super being that was between man and God, and that he never really died. It just appeared that he died. So, you know, Gnosticism gets off in this unbelievable heretical stuff, all this secret knowledge. You have to know these secret things and all that kind of stuff. Well, it was just starting, and it was just beginning to be introduced and to formulate there in the church at Colossae. And so Paul writes him, he's concerned about this, but he tells him, he says, he says your culture there, uh, what, what you are doing in that church is going to prevent uh, this heresy from taking hold there. Now, I want you to see what he says about them. Colossians chapter 2, verse 4 and verse 5. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. You see his concern right there? He says, I don't want these heretical teachers to persuade you. I don't want you listening to them. I don't want you to be deluded. And uh, he says in the next verse, for even though I'm absent in the body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit. But he says, I rejoice because I know this. You're not going to let that happen. You're not going to be deluded by these persuasive arguments here. He says, I rejoice to see your good discipline, military term. Here comes the second military term, the stability of your faith in Christ. Two military terms, kind of interesting that he uses these two things. One is, he says, your good discipline. That was how an army got to battle. They were in formation. They were in order. He says, I look at your formation, I look at your your ranks, I look at your platoons, I watch how you're marching together, you're in cadence, you're in step, you you move as a unit. Uh, You've worked on that and you're moving as a unit. There's a sense of unity that's there. So that's how an army would get to battle was through good discipline. But now look at this, the stability of your faith in Christ. The word stability there is a word that was used to describe how they fought the battle. That they did it, that word stability means to close ranks. 
It, it means to uh, come together uh, in the midst of the battle and close up ranks. Now, the Roman army was famous for this. They picked it up from Alexander the Great, but they were famous for this. You know, the Roman army, half of the terror of the Roman army was hearing them come. When you would hear 6,000 men, that's 12,000 feet, stomping in cadence, it would shake the ground for some distance, not to count the cavalry that flanked them on either side. Uh, and, and so as they would come, you would, hear, you would hear that. You would feel the ground shake. You could hear the clanking of armor, and you could, it was all in precision, and they had these shields that interlocked with each other so that when they got to the battle site, they would call a command, they would lock those shields, and what it did was this, it stabilized. Here's the word right here. It stabilized you. Uh, it stabilized, you were stabled, uh, you, were, you were better stabilized by the man on your right and by the man on your left, so that when the Roman arm, army got there, they were famous to do this, they would get there and they would just literally push the enemy with those, with those massive shields. They would just push them. Or when they were attacked, they could stand there and withstand the attack of what was coming at them. So that's what he says right here. He says, that's your atmosphere. That's your climate. That's your culture is that there is a unity. And when anything happens, you guys close right. You pull up together. Now, how in the world does that happen? How do we do this? Well, let me tell you, everything we do at this church adds to the culture. How we do the business. Uh, how staff relates to each other. Uh, but let me show you three quick things right here in the text that Paul refers to that have two things that have a great impact on the culture, but one thing really is the bottom line for it all. Beginning in verse 1, so let me back up to verse 1 of chapter 2 of Colossians, and here it comes. It is the pastor-people relationship. How you and I relate to one another has a great deal to do about our culture. Now listen to what he says. For I want you to know how great a struggle. The word struggle there is uh, agon in the Greek. Alpha, gamma, omega, nu, agon. It's our word agony. It was used in the athletics of that day to talk about two men who were wrestling, how they agonized trying to pin each other. So he says, this is what's going on inside of me. Paul says, I have this agon. I've got, I've got these, this wrestling that's going on inside of me on behalf of you, for those of you who are at Laodicea and for all of those who've not personally seen my face. Now, Paul didn't start the church at Colossae. Epaphras may have. We're not sure. Epaphras was there. Timothy had been there and uh, had spent time there. Uh, but we don't know, but we do know Paul did not, he did not start the church at Colossae. Somebody did, and so they had never seen their pastor. They didn't know him. And he's, he's in prison, by the way, when he writes this. He's in Roman prison, and he writes this, and he says, man, I'm just in agony. He says, I, I, would, I would far rather be there with you than be where I am. I'm struggling. I, I know that there's work to be done there in Colossae, just, just like there is in all the churches. He says, but I'm struggling here with all of this. I've got to watch my time. Uh, so he says, I'm struggling because you don't know me and I've not had the privilege and the pleasure to get to know you. Now, let me tell you, that's one of the great struggles of being a pastor. I was 12 years in uh, Jacksonville. I was seven years in Dallas. Before that, I was seven years in 
North Carolina, and before that, I was seven years in Virginia. And before that, life was simple. Uh, <clears throat> but, you, you know, being in a place, especially 12 years, you generally get to know the place. Being in a place seven years, I've not been here a year yet. And it is, it is a struggle, I understand, because I want people to know me. Now, here's the struggle. The only way they knew Paul is from the messages that they heard from Paul through Epaphras or through Timothy or now through this letter, this epistle. And uh, the fact of the matter is Paul knows it and I know it. You can't get to know a guy through one or two sermons. There's just no way. That's the struggle I have because I'll have people who will hear me once or twice and they'll decide, well, I know what he's like. I, you know, I've made up my mind. He's not, he's not interested in me. This is all that's on his mind is this over here or that over there or something like that. Listen, let me tell you something. It takes a long time to get to know somebody, and you can't get to know them just through a sermon. So my word to you is this. I am here to get to know you, and I want you to get to know me and to get to know my heart and to know what God is saying to me and to know that I love you, and to know that I care about you, and to know that I feel more called to this place than any place I guess I've ever been. So our relationship helps create the climate in this place, the culture in this place. The second thing is your relationship with each other. So y'all thought you were going to get out of this. But now Paul comes, and look at what he says in verse 2. He says that their hearts may be encouraged. He said, I want your hearts to be encouraged. Having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. Now you see, you, if you watch this in Colossians, he's going to keep going back to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, because he's, he's not wanting this heresy that is being formulated now to take root. He wants them to know who Jesus Christ is. But he comes to him and he says this, this is your relationship to one another. You having been knit together in love. Now, knit together is a medical term, and it describes literally how a doctor would set a broken bone. You, you watch somebody get a fracture. Ooh, what a horrible thing. Y'all remember that guy playing on Easter Sunday a couple of years ago that, was he playing for Kentucky in the NCAA playoff? Do y'all remember that? Man, I was sitting there watching that thing, and boy, he fractured his leg. Ooh, I just fell in the floor. Anyway, it's taking a fractured bone like that and just putting it back together. That's the word. You being knit together. Now, he's talking about you. That's what God does when you come together as a church family. That's why you can't sit home and watch it on the Internet and God do that because you're not being knit together with anybody but the dog or the cat. You've got to be in the body in order to be knit together. You see, God does something when people come together that's why the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake this. Don't neglect this. So they're being knit together. Now, understand this. It's an ongoing process. 
The tense of this verb means that you're being knit together and being knit together and being knit together and being knit together. Well, I had an upset with somebody. Well, that's okay. If you'll let the Holy Spirit, he'll, put, he'll, he'll start knitting you back together. Well, I hadn't talked to somebody in the last year. What a shame in the house of God and the people of God. Let the Holy Spirit begin to knit you back together. That doesn't mean you'll see everything alike. It doesn't mean that you'll agree on everything. But it means this, we're knit together in love. And if I have a difference somewhere, we get that straightened out. We move on with it. So he says, in doing that, you attain to all the wealth. Now, what is all the wealth? If you look over to verse 9, Paul's going to use the same word. Um, in verse 19, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 19, if you look over to verse 19, he's going to use the same word there, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together, there you go, there's the same word, you're being knit together by the joints and ligaments. He says, by the very things that, that internally hold you together, he is doing this work, grows with a growth, which is from God. What is the wealth here? It is spiritual growth. It's not church budgets. It's not how big the budget is. It's not how big the building is. Spiritual wealth is spiritual growth. You can't buy that. You can't budget that. That's worth more than the church budget. I'm going to have to get up here while I can go over here and amen myself. Amen. That's where the real wealth comes in. And do you understand by reading this, what he's saying right here is this, is that if we aren't allowing the Lord to knit us together, you're going to struggle growing spiritually. Okay, uh, now, I want to get to what I want to get to here. And that is the third thing, and it's this. And it's our relationship with Christ, personally. Verse 6 and verse 7. He comes down, he says, now therefore. Talking about the culture of the place. Therefore, listen to this. As you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, act like it. That's literally what that means. You have received, as you have received Christ Jesus, that is your salvation. You've received him. Now, live like it. In everything you do, in the words you choose to use, in the way you speak to one another, in the way you live your life, in the way you spend your money, in the things that you commit yourself to, in the places you go, Everything you do, live like you know Jesus Christ. Don't you think that begins to form a culture for your life? I think about the culture of my daddy's home. Uh, Mealtime was big for my dad. Uh, he grew up in a big family. He grew up very poor, grew up during the Depression, and uh, he, he wanted everybody there. He didn't like it if you were not there at mealtime. You know, well, I've got a date. Well, you can eat first. No, well, I'm taking her out to eat. Well, y'all could come here and eat. You know, it was that kind of thing. He wanted everybody at home. He liked everybody to be at the table. He loved it when we all, when we all came back there together. And at my daddy's table, the culture at my daddy's table was this. You, number one, you better hope and pray you don't take a bite before he prays or you'd, you'd have your funeral preached. Or number two, the second thing was this. We're not going to argue about anything at this table. So don't start any fuss, upset. What's Mealtime 
is together family time. And the, and the whole thing that he cast over that was the blessing of God. Now, that's the culture. Now, don't you think that makes a difference in a home? Don't you think that makes a difference in, in kids' lives? Well, that's what he's saying right here. You've received Christ. Now, live like it. Act like it in every area of your life. Now, watch this. He says, this is what's happened. Having been firmly rooted. Now, I'm going to just, I know this is tedious at times, but I'm going to do it because there's a reason here. I want you to listen to the verb tenses through this whole thing. He comes and he says, having been firmly rooted, that is a perfect passive participle. That means that that, that being rooted, ridzo is the word in the, in the Greek. Ridzo, you remember ridzo the rat in, uh, from, uh, what are those little puppet things? Muppets, the Muppets. Rizzo. I wonder why they called him Rizzo. Because Rizzo means root. Radish comes from Rizzo. Root. You've been rooted. Past tense. Perfect passive participle. It was a point in your life where you were saved. Period. You don't have to keep struggling and wondering or getting saved again and getting saved again. There's no such thing as getting saved again and again and again. You get saved, you're rooted in Christ. That's what the verb tense tells us there. He says, so there you go. You're rooted now. Here it comes. These are present passive participles. What's happening now? Because I've been rooted, I've been being built up. My life is being built up and built up, and built up, and built up. And here comes the next, next participle, and established. Perfect passive participle. Um, a, a present uh, passive participle. So there, there it is again. There, I'm being built up. I'm being established. My life is being strengthened. I'm growing spiritually in your faith just as you were instructed. Now here comes a present active participle overflowing with gratitude because, now let me put all that together, because I have at a point in the time in my past, I came to Jesus Christ, I was saved, I am never going to be unsaved. I am saved. It happened. In that moment I gave my life to Christ, Christ saved me. He not only saved me, he sealed me. Now what's been happening ever since? I've been being, I've been being built up and uh, equipped and established. God's been working in my life. Now listen, change doesn't take place over, overnight. So all of this has been working. God's been shaping me and changing me and building me and growing me and equipping me. All of this over a period of time in the faith, I don't have time to show you this, but that is not subjective, that is objective. It is not that your faith is doing this. It is, it is the word of God, it is the faith of the Word of God that's doing this in you. The word, in other words, just simply, the Word of God is working in you. And it is doing these things so that now, present active participle, I am just overflow. I am just gushing with gratitude to God. Now, is anybody here tonight gushing? Are you glad you say? Are you glad you're not going to go to hell? Huh? Are you glad that Jesus Christ is with you in every crisis, every issue that you face in life? 
He is right there beside you the whole way. We should be gushing with gratitude. Sometimes I don't think we really realize what we have. Now, let me tell you something. If we're gushing with gratitude that we've been saved, that has something to do with the atmosphere of Valleydale Church. It'll be a happy place to come. Huh? I think it's, I love coming here. Uh, it's happy for me. I enjoy being here. I'm happy. I'm thankful. I am, I'm still amazed God would save me. And I hadn't got over that, but I then I surely can't figure out why in the world he would call me to preach. Well, he, here you go right there. I don't think sometimes we ever stop and go through this and think about the fact of all that God has placed in our hands and the opportunity we have to make the culture of this place one of absolute joy because of our salvation. I got a story, and I got time enough to tell you. We just don't know sometimes what we have. This is a great church, y'all. This is a great church. I preach in churches almost every week. Y'all don't really know that, but Monday nights I go to a lot of places and preach. I, uh, I have churches all over the place uh, ask me to come and preach. I have men's conferences. I have you know all kind of things that are that uh, I'm offered, and I, I slip off, and I'll go preach to them. Why? You know, my daughter asked me the other night. She said, Daddy, you going this Monday night again? I said, yeah. She said, well, why are you doing that? That's who I am. I'm a preacher. That's, that's the time I'm the happiest, most fulfilled, is when I'm preaching the Word of God. Well, I don't think sometimes we realize this is a great church, folks. Do you realize what you have in your hands here? Do you realize that? Jake was a 35-year-old farmer. His dad died and left him the farm. True story. It's not a preacher's story. Um, but he just, he just could not. He could not make it. Like so many small farms, um, prices were going down, but production prices were always going up, and he could not compete with these conglomerates that would come in and buy up these small farms and drive prices down, and um, they could produce it a lot cheaper, and they could make money. And uh, he came to the place where, regrettably, he said, I've just got to sell. He said, if I don't sell, the bank is going to foreclose on me. So they put the farm up for sale. They sold it to one of those big conglomerates, and uh, they started packing up. And the night before they sold the place or were to leave their last night there, they all went out to the porch and they sat on the porch like they had done so often. They wanted to build one last memory together. He had a wife. He had two little girls. And uh, he pulled out uh, an old fiddle. It was the only other thing that his dad had left him. Left him the farm, left him a fiddle. And the thing was out of tune, and he really didn't know how to tune it, and he really didn't know how to play it that well. But the little girls loved it. They danced and they sang and they, you know, and so he would do it for them. He told his wife, he said, if I had $50,000, he says, I could make it to harvest. If I could make it to harvest, I think we could make it another year. But I don't know what would happen after that year. If I just had $50,000, I think I could make it. But he said, the bank won't give me the time. So he played that old fiddle. He remembered his daddy told him, said, son, in hard times, he said, uh, this old fiddle will lighten your load. So he played. The kids enjoyed it. They went to bed. 
They got up the next morning. They moved to the city. And he never really could find himself. He lived in just grief that he had had to sell the family farm. And they uh, made it, but he went from job to job to job until one day, sadly, uh, Jake passed away. When he died, family came in, of course, for the funeral, and they stayed to help Jake's wife pack up stuff. And then somebody in the family walked over to that old fiddle and picked it up. They knew a little bit about fiddles. Tried to play a little bit of it and then looked at it and noticed just on the inside it said, Gaiusippi Guardi. They said, my Lord, have mercy. Do you know what you have here? This was a guy who rivaled Stradivari from 1644 to the mid-1700s. He made some of the finest violins in all the world. It was worth multiple times $50,000. But bless old Jake's heart. He didn't know what he had in his hands. Father, I hope we realize what we have in our hands here at Valleydale. We get to be a part, Lord, of your work. We don't build the kingdom of God. Father, we talk about that a lot, but we don't build the kingdom of God. You do. In fact, you tell us, Matthew chapter 16, that you will build your church. The sweet part of it, Lord, is this. You've invited us in on the process. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of your body here at Valleydale. Father, I pray that we realize what you've placed within our hands and that we will, Lord Jesus, be knit together continuously in love for one another, that we will live like we've been saved. And that, Father, as pastor and people, we'll grow close together. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.